And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Ryan Oliver. How are you doing this evening, Ryan Oliver? I- I'm doing pretty good. So you're so formal like uh how, how are you ryan oliver uh, so, uh i'm doing good how are you doing chris i'm doing well uh i'm curious to get into these and also to sort of hear sort of the backstory and then the explanation as as to how you came up with these picks or how you came up with this category uh rather because uh i wouldn't say this was an oops all bangers um a- episode necessarily but I the the three movies that we're talking about here come from three beloved series or at least are spawned from beloved movies. And so uh, I, I think when we get into sort of the nitty gritty of things that we liked versus didn't like, there's going to be uh, maybe a little bit of soft handing some of our, um, our our gripes with some of these movies just because they're coming from a place of love. Or at least that's how I, I feel going into this episode. Oh, certainly. And I think like, especially with our what for sure, like there's, there's like, you know, there's some things not like amazing, but there's like a little bit of rose colored glasses, at least on my end. And I'll, I'll cop to that fact. But I think I'm glad you asked that. So, so I teased at the end of last week. And so this, this is going to take a lot of specificity, but I think like when I sort of, uh, which I mean, as we do, we just get more yeah. niche in these categories, <laughs> but I think like once I give a little explanation here, I think it's going to make sense to our audience and then we'll sort of get into it. So, um, and I should have it pulled up here and I'll, I'll sort of talk as I do this. Um, but so these movies, um, are all sequels to a very like big pop culture touchstone that all released in 1984 Mm -hmm. and 1984, you know, it's, and it's 2024 now. So it's been 40 years removed from, from, so it's a lot of these movies, a lot of beloved movies that are still very ingrained in the pop culture lexicon are celebrating their 40th anniversary. And, you know, as I think there's that um, uh, there's that like famous Quentin Tarantino quote where he talked about how like the three movies that changed the landscape of cinema forever were Jaws in 1975, which, of course, it's really much pretty much the birth of the summer blockbuster uh, mm. Rocky in 1976. And then, of course, Star Wars in 1977. And then, you know, 1980, you had Empire Strikes Back. And then 1981, you had Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then you had just like, you know, the age of the blockbuster was really starting to emerge. And it sort of really crystallized in 1984, where you just had these like pop culture uh, juggernauts that came out. And the reason I picked this episode, uh, for a couple reasons, 
Uh, one of which is I find it interesting, and the director of our good movie mentioned this, I believe, on an interview with Mark Marin a couple years ago when he was on that podcast. I recommend checking that out. Uh, so Joe Dante is the filmmaker in question. Said something to the effect of when he was making our our good, which I'll just say. I mean, you've seen the episode, you've clicked it at this point, but it's Gremlins <laughs> Two: The New Batch from 1990. Um, you know, he mentioned when he made that movie because it came out six years after Gremlins, and he even name checked our what which is Ghostbusters 2 from 1989, directed by the late Ivan Reitman, um, that like those movies came out, quote unquote, too late. And Mm -hmm. in this era of, and maybe we're moving away from this era of IP, like we saw in 2023, a really sort of rough year for like established franchises, like Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny, nobody gave a shit. Any Marvel movie that wasn't Guardians of the Galaxy, nobody gave a shit um you know like uh fast x like underperformed compared to that like that series seems to be slowing down even mission impossible dead reckoning which was one of the best reviewed movies of the summer still underperformed relatively so maybe people were moving away from different stuff but in this sort of like ip arms race there's sort of this rule of thumb with sequels where like you either need to make it like two to three years after the movie comes out strike while the iron's hot or you need to wait until absence makes the heart grow fonder and have it be like the legacy sequel. And mm-hmm. so what I found fascinating about these three movies is not only do they spin off from these very popular movies from 1984, um, but they're all sequels that were in that like less like over five year, less than 10 year gap from their mm-hmm. predecessor. So it's just like that period where they're like, nobody cares about yeah. these. And it's especially- an all, we're all out of ideas type move. A little bit, yeah, for sure, and especially because I'm 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 trying to uh, look here because uh, I wanted to pull up the the uh, box office uh, um, box office uh, uh, returns. Yeah, the box office returns because I wanted to note because so I already mentioned the good and the what, so I'll also throw in the bad. Beverly Hills Cop 3 from 1994 directed by John Landis and I know people might be saying like, well, those other two are twos, so why did you pick Beverly Hills Cop 3? Two reasons. Number one, Beverly Hills Cop 2 actually adhered to that idea where its sequel came out three years after Beverly Hills Cop came out in 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two, I like Beverly Hills Cop 2 and I don't like yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 3. So that's there, there you go. That's really what I decided to do. Plus this that has a seven year gap between two and three. So it fits this sort of parameter. But I do want to like it, it's fascinating to note, and we'll get into the grosses of the movies in question. But I just wanted to point out looking at 1984 the number one highest grossing movie of 1984 was beverly hills cop with 234 mm-hmm. million dollars domestic number two ghostbusters with 229 mm-hmm. million domestic uh, number three was indiana jones and the temple of doom at 179 and then number yeah. four gremlins with 148 million so hell yeah so three of the four highest grossing movies of 1984 the sequels are accounted for here so i found that to be a fascinating um mm-hmm so that's why I'm roping them all together. Um, and we'll probably get into our histories with the originals. At least like in the instance of our good, we've talked about gremlins on this podcast ad nauseum. We had it on an episode, so we probably won't rehash the first one too much. Episode but, 77. Yep. You can go back and give it a listen. It's one of our most listened to episodes also. Um, people love gremlins. People love gremlins or they love elves. One or the other. <laughs> 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 or Or both. <laughs> we love both so uh, yeah uh, uh but uh i guess let's uh let's just get into it and uh we'll start with gremlins 2 the new batch from 1990 remember the last time 
we told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all, we told you to never, ever get them wet. You didn't listen. They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. So the monsters are real? I didn't say that. Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. Um, I'll get the plot synopsis out of the way. I wrote plot synopsis today. Um, yeah. Billy Peltzer, uh, once again played by Zach Galligan, and Kate Berenger, also once again played by Phoebe Cates, are now living in the Big Apple working for the Clamp Organization, a multimedia conglomerate that has built a state-of-the-art high-rise with housing, cafeteria, and inexplicably a science lab, among other things. Uh, when the adorable Gizmo finds himself in the lab after the death of Mr. Wing, the experiments on him find a new, more chaotic crop of gremlins, including a smart gremlin, an electric gremlin, and a bat gremlin taking over the high-rise, which leads Billy, Kate, and visiting Murray Futterman, played by Dick Miller once again, to band together once more to stop these menacing creatures from getting out of the building and running amok in New York. Um, I want to hear what you think about Gremlins 2, but I do want to, you know, once again refer to that Mark Maron interview with Joe Dante, um, which is the best quote about the existence of this movie, because basically uh, Warner Brothers for years wanted to make the movie and kept wanting to throw more and more money at Joe Dante. And he's like, no, I don't want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. And then he eventually said, yes, I'll do it under one condition that I have carte blanche to do whatever I want to. Um, and they granted it. And his one goal while making Gremlins 2, in his words, how can I assure that there's never a Gremlins three? Um, and uh, and it, he he made it happen. <laughs> he, is, he did. Yeah. There is no longer. There has not been a Gremlins three, and uh, I think still to this day Warner Brothers wants it to happen. It wouldn't happen under Joe Dante, but uh, uh, it has not happened yet to this day. But I will ask you, what do you think of Gremlins two, the new batch? Uh, I kind of love Gremlins 2, the new batch, and it had been a very long time since I've seen it. This used to play on TV, and and that's going to be a common theme with all of these movies. They all played on TV all of the time. Um, So there was a lot of stuff that it had been 10 plus years since I'd seen Gremlins 2, the new batch. But there was like scene after scene where I was like, oh, I remember this like setup. I I remember this um, gremlin type and, and... as it like kept unfolding and it kept getting zanier and zanier, I sort of came to like this realization that I might like Gremlins two more than I like Gremlins one. It, it, it to me is like an alien and aliens type situation or Terminator oh, yeah. and Terminator two, where you know the first one sets up the lore really really well and grounds the characters, grounds the world, and, and sort of gives you an idea and it's a really fun plot. But then the second one all bets are off everything has to be bigger greater grander um which is what this does but it like it goes to such an absurd and insane degree at every opportunity that i i couldn't imagine a gremlin sequel not being gremlins 2 like i wouldn't want a rehash of gremlins 1 or something that runs along those lines like it's 
it's honestly just truly like creative genius and and truly inspired that Joe Dante would make a movie this insane because that's where you have to go with this concept. Uh, And I adore it. I adore it as well. And, and like the fact that the movie, the Warner brothers logo begins with a Daffy duck and, and Bugs Mm -hmm. Bunny, like short vignette, like almost clues you in immediately to what, like the, the tone of the movie is going to be. Uh, Joe Dante notoriously a huge Looney Tunes fan and ultimately ended up making a Looney Tunes movie with Looney Tunes back in action, uh, mm-hmm. which we will eventually talk about on this podcast uh, for sure. But um, no, I, I'm in agreement. Like I it's it's hard for me to pick which one I like most because I love both movies dearly. I would maybe give the edge to the first one just because I've, I by sheer virtue I've seen the first one the most. And it's kind of a it's a yeah. cl- classic monster movie, classic Christmas movie, um, you know, but like just. But as a as a absolute money burn, like how could you not love what this movie is about? Like this movie <laughs> is just like takes the utter piss out of everything. Like it, mm. for one, it takes the piss out of like gremlins as a concept on like a few different levels because there's that great like famous great scene when uh like Gizmo has now begot more Mogwai and then those Mogwai have turned into gremlins and. Billy is up in like the control center of this like high rise building and he's explaining the rules after them. They're like, well, what if they ate and then changed time zones on a plane? Then would they mm-hmm. like turn into like they're questioning the logic of the rules, which has always which been like, a conversation sort of, that I've had. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like everyone has done that where it's like, uh, what? Like, yeah, these rules are pretty like loose and not really like nonsensical grounded and nonsensical. Yeah. Uh, so there's that element. And then there's the other element where I like forgot about where like Gizmo is tortured mercilessly for like 80% <laughs> yeah. of this movie. It's like Joe Dante just took all of his frustrations about like the mass marketability of Gizmo out on him. And Watching this movie, you're like, there were no studio notes, but if there were one, it was you can't kill Gizmo. Because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like... So, he wanted to. So, oh, he definitely wanted to, but it's like it's like one executive just happened to walk on set one day and was like, uh, okay, but like, you can't kill him, right? Like, you know you can't kill yeah. him, right? Um, the scene where they're running the, the, the train into him and he just leaned over, he's like, uh, hey, Joe, just, just maybe don't, maybe don't l- kill <laughs> oh, but he our toy like, line. Like you said, he want he definitely wanted to un- unquestionably. Like he, he oh, clearly yeah. hated hates that character, <laughs> and it comes through this movie. Um, but like, so it's a beautiful money burn from like taking the piss out of the gremlins. It's a money burn of taking the piss out of sort of like just big conglomerates at the time. Like because our our uh like head of this clamp is basically a twofer. He's basically a mixture of Donald Trump and uh Ted Turner is like the mm. mixture like he he's sort of like the 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 real estate mogul has the sort of like vocal cadence of like a donald trump but because it's like a multimedia conglomerate it's ted turner which is even funnier because i'm pretty sure turner owned warner brothers at the time of this movie so he's like completely biting the hand that feeds mm-hmm. uh which is fantastic um and then just the fact that it's a zany looney tune movie like the the gremlins are everything is amped to 11 like the amount of gremlins is amped to 11 the attitude of the gremlins are up to 11 the the outrageous gremlins they come up with as i put in the synopsis like the smart gremlin which is fantastic and uh the lightning gremlin is great the lady gremlin of course hot as fuck uh, 
<laughs> what a hook! Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that seems so good. Um, and then and just the 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 indulgence, the indulgence of like opening up the Warner Brothers catalog. Like I already mentioned, the Looney Tunes thing. The Bat Gremlin makes a bat signal as he yeah, flies out he of the building. Exits out the wall. Uh, yeah. Which is like fantastic. Um, there's uh, 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 the, the whole like New York, New York sequence is mm-hmm. is great. Um, the fact that they like the cameos too that are like indulgent, but like hilarious. They have Leonard Malton because he d- gave Gremlins not a great review. They, they, yeah. they, they attack him. But uh, I mean, like they have Leonard Malton in a scene where he's talking about Gremlins. gremlins. Yeah. He's and talking- so it, it, the the move is like it's meta on meta on meta like the, there's also the famous scene where um the the gremlins themselves like invade the projection booth and they yeah. destroy the film and they then make they shadow start, puppets they make shadow puppets and, the, and then we cut to the inside of a movie theater uh where where uh hollywood hulk hogan like spikes the camera lens and like send sends the gremlins off so like the came the movie cold soda is... hot popcorn and no gremlin grem stars in the projection booth well there's also another cameo and also here the best say. acting job that hulk hogan's ever done top tier Top tier Hulk Hogan performance. Um, and also Paul Bartel uh, is mm-hmm. also in that sequence as well as the theater ushers. Like we don't, Raul we don't make the chopping movie. Mall. And Chopping Mall. The cl- uh, and and uh, uh, he's in Death Race 2000. He's in he's in another oh, yeah. Joe Dante movie as well. I think he's in Rock and Roll High School, I want to say. But um, isn't he? I think he uh, is also like a counselor at that kids camp in, uh, in Piranha. Piranha. He's in Piranha. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Because yeah, he came from the Roger Corman background yep. as Joe Dante did. But yeah, he Paul, Paul Bartel and the people are complaining. He's like, we don't make the movies; we just show them. <laughs> Which is funny because like as someone you who probably used that line years, working at a theater before, yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> you get a lot of complaints about people. I'm like, look, we're just showing the movie. Like, we just show the movies, I, man. I just, I, I, nobody I asks I me. I didn't make it. They just send us the reels. I was just like, here you go. Do you want to pass to come back? I don't care. <laughs> so. <laughs> But anyway, I cut you off. What, what were you going to say? No, I mean, I wanted to sort of get into the the structure of the movie. Because, I mean, like, we, we, we can sort of bullet list the stuff that we liked about the movie. But the I, I think overall, so we've now moved away from small town America. We are now in New York City, like you've already said. Um, uh, uh, Billy Peltzer works at this the Clamp organization, which, uh, as you've already astutely pointed out, Daniel Clamp is yeah. a uh, <laughs> is an animus for Donald Trump, very mm-hmm. clearly. Um, being, but in, the only difference being that in this movie, Daniel Clamp is um, an exuberant uh, but very passionate uh, CEO leader of this company who actually listens to the opinions of others and uh, actually seems empathetic and stuff. So, like, he's not a one-to-one match uh, for Donald Trump at all. Uh, In fact, he's a hero at the end, whereas that would not be the case. (laughs) The other person, clearly not a hero or a likable or uh, an intelligent person, 
anything like uh, that. Blubbering so, coward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. Uh, you know, trying to you know overthrow democracy. You know. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, yeah, actually, yeah. have others overthrow democracy on his behalf while he hung out and watched it on TV and stuffed his fat fucking face. So uh, yeah, it would. Daniel Clamp is not a one to one of what it is they're trying to parody, but no, maybe but, his but, personality but, is closer to Ted Turner. Yeah, I would say so. That for as like the mogul aspect of it for sure. Yeah. But like but like the like you said, the real estate sort of element and the name and the, the I would say I would say his voice, whatever he's trying to imitate sounds more like Trump. But like you said, he's actually mm-hmm. more like trying to do good versus uh, uh real life. I mean he things. has a heroic arc. So He does, yeah, absolutely. Even though like it, it, it's like heroic but like bittersweet at the end of the movie as well, where it's just like uh you know, he's like sees Billy Peltzer's picture of of uh, his hometown and is like, you know, well, we'll create like uh, like, you know, us own, but like manufactured small towns. And I was like, is that supposed to be a happy ending? Because that seems like really like sad to me. And but, prophetic. Yeah. Unfortunately. And, and prophetic. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like he, he uh, this is like the better version of I know it's a much later movie of, of like Justin Long from uh Fucking what's that movie we talked about that was terrible? Uh, it's a wonderful knife. Oh, uh, it's a wonderful knife. Oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like the better version of that. But anyway, um, but yeah, I, um, but like you said, like yeah, he's an an, an amalgamation of these two, and it's also entertaining because you want to talk about the plot structure of the movie. Is like I love how it's like amped, but it's like it's making fun of sequels while still adhering to like the formula of sequels right like Mm -hmm. because it's like it's still the same structure of the first one like we have mr wing somebody comes into the office and like instead of wanting to buy gizmo they want to buy the property like it's somebody from the clamp organization trying to like force them out and he won't Mm -hmm. um but like there's that and then we're introduced to zach galligan and phoebe cates and then gizmo is cute doing his thing and then he gets hit with water and then more mogwai come and then they then shit goes great like it's exactly the same formula yeah. as the first one like just without uh uh cory feldman cory feldman thank yeah. you uh, <laughs> for some reason i could only think tommy jarvis and i was just like why can i only remember tommy jarvis right now but i can't remember of Corey all Feldman's the things name. but yeah of Corey... all of the characters he's ever played um but yeah i the and that's something that's also going to come up as like a common theme across these. I mean, of course, they're sequels, and so then they they have the formula. They try and adhere to it. But I think what makes Gremlins two so successful is that it it just blows it way beyond proportion. Because yes, what we get after in the first Gremlins of you know the oh no, uh, I got him wet. Now he's popped out a bunch of more Mogwai, uh, and then oops, I fed them after midnight. Is like pretty immediately we know from the get go that these Mogwai are are evil, one. But then two, they're not all just basically clones of Gizmo who then become Gremlins, and they're all just indiscernible clones of each other. Each one of them uh, has a distinctive look and and a mm-hmm. distinctive personality, and the. The animatronics and the puppeteering that went into Gremlins 2 is, in my opinion, heads and shoulders above what they did in the first Gremlins. Like, it, like there's articulated eyes and musculature of the face in the way that they're, like, all super expressive in the way that they interact and the way that they move. Yeah. Like, 
the the budget for this movie is massively expanded, and that's probably one of the <laughs> one of the things that Joe Dante did on purpose to try and tank it. But it paid off in my opinion because it's like you're never going to see practical effects that are done to this degree. Like I know people and me included just heap praise on top of Rob Bottin for his work in uh, uh, The Thing from 1982. Incredible, incredible work, and it's always mentioned whenever people talk about practical effects. People need to be talking about Gremlins 2 more when we're talking about the pinnacle of practical effects in movies, because it's incredible what they were able to accomplish here. I mean, Rick Baker's a fucking master. Like, Rick Baker is obviously one that should be, you know, he did Videodrome, of course, which is, like, fantastic, and then he did the Mm -hmm. effects for this. I would even go as far, even though we were tipping towards the CGI, he did the makeup for Men in Black, and, like, rewatching Men in Black, like, within the last, like, year or two, it's like, goddamn, like, the effects in that movie and the makeup in that movie is incredible, too. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just a... So, like, yeah, what he does here is unmatched, and the fact that it's, like, they do it with, like, minimal sort of at the time cg in this movie they they do a couple shots and they don't even look horrible like they stand out like the scene of gizmo dancing in the lab is like kind of the yeah one that stands out where you're like eh, it's not horrible well, and, and when he gets kicked great. out into the streets in new york after the uh yes. the the chinatown shop gets destroyed um it's like yeah like, eh, it's not great but like but they use that sparingly Yes. You know, and it's like they still like uh, like use the puppeteering as much as they can and uh, like the, the practical effects as much as they can. And it's like like, yeah, it's it's incredible. And just the sheer volume of Gremlins, too. Like, I mm-hmm. mean, I know there's because like the first one, there's that scene. There's like a couple scenes where there's a lot of them. Like there's a scene in the bar and there's a scene mm-hmm. in the movie theater. But like for the most part, like those like when it comes to like later scenes of them attacking there's only like a couple on screen at a time um versus this one it feels like there's like at least a dozen if not more at the frame at any given time in this movie oh yeah (laughs) it's like and they're all doing their own like zany like swinging from shit and biting through cables and attacking people and like it's utter chaos whenever they're on chaos absolute chaos and it's amazing like it's 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 uh it's fantastic and then, like, what we also have to talk about, like, the tone of this movie, what makes it work mm. is, like, everything is heightened and nothing is taken seriously. And not just the gremlins, but, like, the corporate culture of this is, like, also, like, heightened. And it's, like, also, like, sort of painful because I'm just, like, I recognize this <laughs> and I'm not, like, for it. But, like, it's just, like, it, it made it extra funny. Uh, like, there's, uh, uh, what is it? There's the uh, the character of uh, Marla Bloodstone played by Havilland. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, who's like Billy's like superior. And so it's like, she's just like the, she's like, she's fantastic. She understands the assignment of this is she's like New York, New York accent, smoking a cigarette the entire time. And it's just like, we got to have those done by this time, Billy. Like you can't just, this is a small town, Billy. Like we got to get this done. And then, then when Daniel Clamp like comes down and actually like, meets with the workers and was like oh i like this person she's like hey so why don't we go to dinner tonight like Mm -hmm. (laughs) immediately is like turned on by the idea that she could get up in her career to the next level yeah based on that and i was just like oh like i mean like not like it's funny but it's like funny in the way that it sticks in your throat because you're just like this is painfully accurate and is still painfully accurate yeah I like, oh i i've met that person i yeah, know exactly I, who, yeah. I know that person i've i know that person entirely like wholeheartedly and it's just like ugh, like it, it's just like it's painful um 
and i love too that like uh yeah like i i love the little like uh you know to go back to like the piss takes like there's like little little glimpses of like where they try to call back to the first one because sequels do that where they have to call back to the first and it's like almost every opportunity where they do it they like undercut it with a joke and i love that like like towards the end like phoebe cates is about to tell like a horrific story like she did in the first <laughs> yeah. one and they're just like we don't we don't have time we don't have time for this we gotta go yeah go. i forgot that he cut her off it was just like <laughs> did she have another fucking tragic experience with like a, a family member who died <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she did, but like we don't. Oh, she we, did. We, like, oh, we, we got a fucking. We don't really hear about it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> oh man, it's um, just. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I was gonna say we need to get to. I, I think the 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 biggest uh, contribution to this film in in terms of tone, in terms of zaniness, and and taking it to the next degree, uh, Christopher Lee and the mm. strange lab that they have running on one of the floors in in this building where they basically have created plasmids from bioshock um (laughs) which like they they don't uh, or i guess tonics from bioshock infinite if you want to be a pedantic dick which i will be um but they yeah i'll agree i'll just uh go along with it Well, because plasmids in the first Bioshock you would inject, but in this movie, of course, they're drinking them, which makes them a tonic. So then that'd be Bioshock Infinite, which is I the, haven't seen. Uh, I haven't played any Bioshock, so I will. I will just meet you. We're on not friends terms. anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, like it's it's incredible to be like, okay, well, we've got gremlins, and then we're gonna put the budget into each one of them to make them distinctive um, puppets that have their own looks and their own personality and, and their own feels and stuff to it. But then how do we take it beyond that a level? Well, how about we invent magic potions that they drink, which give them superpowers so that they're even further separated and distinctive. And so like, that's where we get, like you started listening them off earlier, the spider gremlin, the electric gremlin, oh, the, the lady gremlin. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's such an amazing way to like, well, we're already ridiculous. Like, because, of course, like, it's the sequel. So then what's the sequel going to give you? More gremlins. Well, that's not enough. More gremlins is a... That's act two shit. That's even act one shit. We get the gremlins in act one as we're finishing that shit up. Yep. So, like, that, that that's that's not enough for us to do more gremlins. Let's make them fucking weird. Let's let's go interspecies with our, with our gremlins. And it's yep. like, that is how you take it up a notch to a way that's going to surprise the audience... In the same way that the first Gremlins did. Because, again, if you just do the same thing or if you just bring it up to the next level to where the the audience is going to expect you to go there and you don't go any further, then, oh, neat, you gave me more of the same. But why is that going to get my butt in a seat? This is the kind of thing that that every sequel should strive to be. Oh, 100%. And, and even, even as much of a lark, total money burn that this movie clearly is yeah by introducing that element it's brilliant twofold because like to go off your point like yes they make it to such an absurd degree that like you can't help but like you know make it weird bigger zanier crazy whatever but it actually introduces an interesting plot element that actually gives our heroes a sort of like ticking clock to where they have to do it because then there's the element of well with these experiments in the serum there's potentially a way that they're going to inject themselves with the ability to be out in the daylight because of course right. the last the one gremlin rule is that they they don't sunlight will kill them and so and so 
um that's their their concern is they're like we have to stop this before they become immune to sunlight and then they go out into new york city and then they cause a bunch of havoc and also then there's that other element of like not only is that but they're trying to get out like closer to dark and so they have that big like map painting outside where like we're gonna fool them to thinking it's night so that they're gonna walk out and like uh you know then melt in the sunlight (laughs) right well and it it's a brilliant way too because of of course in the first movie it's like oh shit there's gremlins they're worried about them getting outside anyway and then uh, of course we see um uh stripe jumps into the pool and then we see the stop motion shot of all the gremlins walking down the street and we're like, oh, fuck, they're already all outside. And so then, of course, like, like it's not enough for the sequel to be like, oh, what if they get outside? But outside is New York. Oh, yeah. like that's that's enough of like a, 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 a to, to raise the stakes to that level. Yeah, because like, they can get in the sewers and multiply there right. and just like just like cause so much more hell in a big city yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. But what if it's a giant fucking spider? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's, uh, that's a different story. <laughs> hey, that's what that's what Rambo Gizmo is for. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is a great. I love I love they that. Push bit too like, they push him too far. They push him too far. I love Rambo Gizmo. <laughs> uh, it's it's great. Um, and so I, I love that. I love that introduced like Rambo or uh, not Rambo Gizmo like loves television. He's watching Rambo three, I think, um, <laughs> on the TV. And like, uh, uh, and, is that uh, not Rambo two? Or I guess no. It he, might he have started been with the headband in Rambo two, but he carried it uh, over to the other ones. Well, you know, it might have been because I think Rambo three was the same year as this. Oh, okay. He did carry it over. I, you know, but like, I, I love Mr. Wings. Like, you know, he's like, ah, television will rot your brain. And then just Gizmo's like, I'm going to take over. <laughs> it's, uh, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, and talk about like, a, a, I know, he, like I said, I, 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 I long suspect that Joe Dante wanted to kill Gizmo in this, but then it's like, they accidentally made more marketability by him being <laughs> Rambo essentially, but it was worth it is what I'm saying. Well, even at the end of the movie, the the uh, Daniel Clamp character, when he sees Gizmo for the first time, talks like, I about see mass him with marketing s- merchandise. I see him with suction cups on his hands in the back windows of cars. It's just like, for fuck's sake, Joe. <laughs> he knew he know, like he know, like, and Joe Dante is probably calmed a little, you know. But like in the years since, that just happens when you get older. But mm-hmm. you know, because he's he's. You know, I think it was just like he wanted to do so many more things, and Gremlins is far and away his biggest movie as a filmmaker. He even said that on that Mark Marin interview I was talking about. He's like, I'm not naive. He's like, I know when I die that like the obituary is gonna say like Gremlins director Joe Dante dead at whatever. Like he's like, I know. Mm-hmm. Like I know that's what most people are going to attribute to me. Like it's just it is what it is. And so I think this this seemed like it was a very personal yet cathartic experience for him to just be like i'm gonna make fun of my own like most popular movie because they're gonna burn a pile of money while doing it (laughs) and he oh boy did he because this movie made 41.5 million on anywhere from a 30 to 50 million dollar budget uh where that is about a third as much as the first gremlins made less than a third of what the first one made so um which i i don't I don't understand why the audience didn't connect with this. I don't either, frankly, like, especially like you could like, I can't even say because of like the zaniness, like it fits. And especially like the same year 
1990, the same year, like Total Recall came out. We already had Robocop. Like, what well, Paul Verhoeven had already made his way to the States. Mm-hmm. As, like, those movies were successful. So it's just like, I don't even think it's, like, the attitude of the movie. I think it was more just, like, people, you know, I think, like, to Joe Dante's, his own words being, like, I think people were just like, ah, like, do I care about the Gremlins anymore? Like, is that a thing, really? Like, we've moved on to these, you know, things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I, I don't know. I, I who knows? I, but it's, it's, it's definitely connected in the years since like this movie mm-hmm. has definitely become more of a cult classic and people have sort of reassessed it as being like it's it's legitimately great and people were wrong to not be on the boat in the first place um, right so uh but yeah i mean i i agree with you like it's again it's hard for me to pick but it's like i might enjoy this one more than the first one i think the first one might be better just a classic classic monster movie Style, yeah, it's the OG. It, it's, it's the OG. Like up because of that, yeah. But like this, but goddamn, this movie is like one of the most entertaining sequels. And it's like I, I was, I hadn't seen it in a, quite a while, but like rewatching, it, I was like, I was just hooting. I was like, this movie is so much fun. <laughs> so. Well, and it, it's perfectly encapsulated, like you said, by starting with the Looney Tunes sort of overture. Because I mean, like if you look at Gremlins One, the there are bits of horror and and go back and listen to episode 77 where we we dive into a little bit deeper but it's sort of like the slow reveal of the gremlins and and the scene with the 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 college professor uh or i believe it's a college professor um like billy uh, pelter's uh, buddy who works at the university uh testing on the mogwai and he goes into the the egg and we're like oh what's going to come out of that like there's a slow sort of reveal before we even get to see what the gremlin looks like for the first time and it's sort of like a jaws reveal of like we know that there's a threat but we don't quite get a peek at it whereas this one all of that's out the window there's there's very little in this movie that could be considered horror outside of like a Cronenbergian body horror but it's like specifically a gremlin body horror so like it doesn't even have a personal attachment to it when like they're drinking the tonics and he's like growing spider legs and stuff there's more of just like a gross morbid curiosity about it more than anything yeah oh it's it's a slapstick comedy i would i would say like a violent slapstick comedy but a slapstick comedy nonetheless yeah i don't think there's anything about this that was like you should be taking this seriously because it it, you shouldn't be and all the better for it i was going to say one thing i wanted to call out before we do move into the next is like because everything is amped up the one thing that's also amped up is the jerry goldsmith score like i mean Mm. the, the og is classic but even the like famous theme is like one and a half times speed in this movie it's like it's like in your face and so it's like it fits the whole tone of the movie it's just just chaos absolute chaos it's just a little bit closer to the yeah i think that's what they're going for that's all folks yeah i think i think you're right 100 percent. which i mean again uh, you know, Joe Dante got to make his Looney Tunes movie here, and then he got to make his Looney Tunes movie like 13 years later. Yeah, uh, this was his know. dry run. This was the dry run for Back in Action, for sure. <laughs> Which is a shame. Like, we'll get to that movie eventually on an episode. But it was like, that movie didn't do well either. Like, it was mm. like kind of a big flop, which is like, why? Joe Dante doing a Looney Tunes movie? Like, what? what's, what's wrong? He already made one, and it rocks. <laughs> and it rocks. Yeah, it's true. This, this movie was... It, shockingly like this movie was not a success but it made more money than back in action did so Hmm. uh so i don't know but uh but yeah gremlins 2 is a total blast and for anyone who hasn't seen it for any reason like do yourself a favor like yeah 
this is kind of an unspoilable movie. Like we talked about all the big points of the movie, but it's like you have to experience it. Like no verbal discussion can do it justice. You just have to witness the chaos for yourself. What well, is this nonstop jokes and callbacks and like it, we can talk about it day and night but like until you get into the tempo of the movie and sort of understand how these things hit and how they're presented you you can't we, we can't do it justice i wouldn't be able to explain it i wouldn't be able to properly spoil the experience of this movie because you really do just need to sort of sit in it absolutely so please do if you haven't it's it's yeah. worth it it's fun um it is more than fun it's just it's a blast like it, it, it you you gotta do it you gotta do it but um, one last shout out another yes. thing that i really appreciated about this movie the what it did it expanded dick miller's role where yeah. they could have just had him show up and been like oh hey you remember me from the first movie okay see you guys later but they gave him a whole ass hero arc and i and like yes Yes, please. Yeah. More Dick Miller all day, every day. I yeah, I can always use more Dick Miller whenever he he shows up, and so yeah, hundred uh, percent. And and uh, it's great too because it's like that that it's such a sequel thing to be like we got to shoehorn in these characters from the other one, and they do, but they do it with a wink, and then they also give him like you said a hero arc. So it's like they justify it and also make it like worthwhile so it's it's great so well they uh, they like he was just a, a one-off character who had some like xenophobic things to say um yeah. uh in the first movie and in this movie a little bit like we can tell he's he's got some uh pent-up rage from his previous experience in some wars but like they 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 present his experiences from the first gremlins movie where he was presumed dead but he apparently survived it um the that his experiences from the first gremlins movie he had ptsd and that he wasn't even sure what he'd experienced was actually real and that he'd been going to therapy and stuff so then to like present him with the reality of like no you're not crazy you actually did see these little green bastards and you barely survived them and then for him to not like break down and turn tail and run back home but he runs headlong into the fire to be like i need like i gotta be there to help out i gotta i gotta yep. go help billy it's just like what the fuck joe dante you took like a, a side character from your first movie and then reintroduced him in the sequel surprising the audience that he's not dead and then you made him a fucking hero with a full rounded arc like he's there the whole time and he gets to have like a hero send-off at the end as Incredible. he should, Frank. As he should, frankly. I mean, it's yeah. Dick Miller's in every Joe Dante movie, so it's like he's like I got to get him in somewhere. So it's like he did him a solid, and and mm -hmm. I'm happy he did it. So because I could always use, always use more Dick Miller. Always welcomed. Uh, it's we still got to do our spinoff podcast called Dick Picks, where we talk about every movie with Dick Miller in it. We should. We we've talked about doing this, and I think we should absolutely <laughs> do it. We'll just, just go through, and we wouldn't run out. Well, I mean, we'd eventually run out of material, but we'd have hundreds of episodes because the dude did so many damn movies. Oh yeah. In his lifetime. So, um, so, but, uh, yeah, Dick Miller is great in front of the camera, but I guess speaking of people from this movie in front of the camera, because Joe Dante has a cameo in our next movie. Oh, you're right. Yeah, he does. So I was trying to think of a good segue. And I, was like, well, uh, yeah, I thought Dante you were going to say Dick's on camera. And I was like, whoa, wait, what? No, no, no. Just Joe Dante is in our next movie. Uh, inexplicably. I caught me off guard. Like I was like, what? 
<laughs> Speaking of weird cameos abound, actually. There's the a lot movie. of cameos in our next yeah. movie. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll just get into it with uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3 from 1994. Hello, welcome to the Beverly Hills Police Department. To continue this message in English, press one pound. If you have homeless people on your lawn, press two star. So what brings you to California, Axel? Vacation? I'm looking for a killer. One, please. We got some evidence that points to one the world. Thank you. Thank you. You mean Rufus Rabbit has gone berserker? You got yourself in the middle of a federal investigation. That guy killed a police officer. He killed a friend of mine. You just keep him out of my face and out of my park. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a tremendous surprise for Mr. DeWall to have me standing right next to him right now. You know, right now I can feel his body tingling. Bring that man down. I'll read the synopsis uh, once again for Beverly Hills Cop 3. After Inspector Todd, once again played by Gil Hill, is killed during a raid in a chop shop, that leads to a discovery of stolen government documents. Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy, traces the perpetrator to Wonderworld in Beverly Hills, where he teams up with park founder Uncle Dave, played by Alan Young, old friend and newly promoted Billy Rosewood, once again Judge Reinhold, and new partner Detective Flint, played by Hector Elizondo, after Taggart's retirement to bring down the suspect, head of park security Ellis DeWald, played by Timothy Carhart. Um... So this will be interesting because I think you and I have vastly different histories with this movie mm. um, because I will just say mine straight up being my picks. This was actually a blind pick for me. I had okay. never seen Beverly Hills Cop three before, despite that of the three original movies of these sequels we're talking about. Beverly Hills Cop is probably my favorite. It might be a top 10 movie of all time for me. I love Beverly Hills Cop, but I have never seen the third one until this episode. But you, on the other hand, I will kick it to you. You have a different history with this movie. <laughs> I've seen this movie more times than I've seen Beverly Hills Cop, which I was surprised <laughs> to learn while watching this movie. It, it, like, it, as it was going on, I was like, I didn't think I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop 3, but now I'm starting to, like, recognize, like, this scene. Like, this looks f- really familiar. I, 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 Maybe this is, like, reminding me of Beverly Hills Cop 2. I'm not so sure. And then I heard... Wonderworld, Wonderworld, and I was like, "Oh my god, I've seen this movie. I can't even tell you how many times." And my brain completely blanked it. And like, it, he gets to the 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 Wonderworld amusement park, and he's running around and stuff. And especially the last like 20, 30 minutes of this movie, this movie must have played on USA Network, like. Every day, all of the time after school, was definitely a movie that I would just throw on while doing other stuff, and so. I'd seen it and completely just it was just gone from my memory. And so it was kind of like watching it for the first time, but just like the weirdest sense of deja vu the entire time I was watching it. You're like you're like Anton Ego and Ratatouille when he takes the bite of the food yeah. and he's like like transported back to the childhood. Except it was the Wonderworld was... song that just pulled me right back. I was like, what the fuck is I was in my, um, my my house in Second Avenue. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> that's no, that's amazing. Because I I mean I assume I know all of these movies played on TV like a lot for sure. But it's funny because like I don't know maybe when I was like old enough to watch the first one like like I never really watched them on TV. Like I just I had the first one on DVD and I watched it pretty constantly. 
Um, and then I don't think I ever really watched the first one on TV because I knew it was going to be edited. So I was like, I just never really did it. And so I never caught the sequels on TV either, but that's, that's fascinating. Like that you were just like, I remember this movie like wholeheartedly. Um, and, uh, so yeah, different experiences. You, you have watched this movie before and watched the last 20 minutes, uh, shitload of times. I had never seen this movie. I just knew it by sort of reputation that it wasn't good. And um, I would agree with that sentiment, though. I wouldn't say the movie was like horrible to sit through by any stretch of the word. It's it's weird. It's weird for a movie that's like pretty safe and generic, which is like weird in and of itself. But like like there's so much about like the product like it sounds like the actual production of this movie went okay but like the behind the scenes of the movie sounds like just like a fucking mess like before yeah. we maybe get into it i'll i'll present some of the research that i had done like there was a quote i think it was in 1989 when eddie murphy was asked about doing the third beverly hills cop where he said i don't think there's anywhere for action fully to go and if you we ever do a third one you'll know that they paid me a shitload of money to do it because like i don't foresee that happening yeah and um shocker um he was paid a lot of money for this movie it was like 10 to 20 million dollars or something like that he got paid a lot of fucking money to deep reprise his role in this movie and so it just the whole thing has like a whiff of desperation like uh because the distinguished gentleman had flopped and the uh the golden Ch- uh, well i gotta look the golden child might have actually been before beverly hills cop too so that might have mm-hmm. been sort of like a one-off but i know like another 48 hours had come out in 1990 it didn't do super well which is another sequel of course and then uh distinguished gentleman was a flop and so it just it felt like a we gotta get a beverly hills cop three okay well then let's also get john landis who directed murphy's other two like popular movies in coming to america and trading places, trading places and yeah. um and so it's just like and john landis said like something in effect like eddie murphy on set like he arrived and was like you know said like hey axel's older he's not a wise ass anymore and like landis was trying to put him in like comedic situations to like let and, him like, riff to let him riff and he would like elude it like as no evident by the scene i noticed this the most because it, it almost felt like it was pulling teeth to get to the point is this movie's full of gratuitous cameos not just like mm-hmm. random a-list cameos we'll get into some of that but actual like callbacks because uh surge comes back in this movie played by bronson pinshot from the mm-hmm. first one um and so it's like he has a whole bit about the gun that's used in the third act in the movie it's like he seemingly goes that scene seemingly is like 10 minutes long it felt like an eternity <laughs> like it just goes on forever it does it goes on for so long and it's only a means to eventually to get murphy to say get the fuck out of here in the same voice that he says it in the first one like it's mm-hmm. it's only a means to get him to say that and he finally says it after the scene that seemingly goes on for 10 minutes long and it's just like it, it just feels like they're pulling teeth to get him right. to do like the humor. And it's like, it's so bizarre that it's just like, he's not cracking jokes where it's like, he's, he is in the first one and he takes it to like the umph degree in Beverly Hills cop Two. Mm-hmm. Beverly Hills cop two is almost like gremlins two in the way that it's got like more riffing, more violence, more like everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but the best description I heard about Beverly Hills cop two is from, uh, matt lynch of, of scarecrow video in review and the famous colonel mortimer letterbox account where he said 
Beverly Hills Cop 2 is the primordial ooze in which Bad Boys 2 spawned from. And that's a pretty accurate yeah. statement, frankly. It's like Bad or Beverly Hills Cop 2 is pretty vile. It's not Bad Boys 2 vile, but it's Bruckheimer Simpson. It's Tony Scott. It's got like uh, 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 Judge Reinhold, like, has got a Rambo poster and he's like firing his gun, is like it, it towards the end of the movie, like a lot. There's like, you know, political incorrectness where, like, you know, certain things I won't repeat, but one I'll, like, for an example, like this, the second in command of the villain in the second one is Bridget Nielsen. And when Axel Foley sees her in the gun range and, like, she walks away, he just says, like, God damn, that's a big bitch or something to that effect. <laughs> like, it just, it just seems like you're like, yeah, it's a Bruckheimer Simpson yeah. thing, yeah. you know? And so, uh, which is also interesting to know, thing to know about three, Bruckheimer Simpson did not produce Beverly Hills Cop three as they did one and two. Uh, they were only going to front 25 million if their script was approved that it would take place in New York. And, uh, they did not approve of the direction it was going. And so they pulled out of the project. Mm. Um, but then did the first bad boys a year later for like 19 million or something like that. So I I mean, but then that paid off in its own franchise. So, I mean, like it was a hit, it wasn't a bad move. Absolutely. Which is also funny now that I think about it, because like Beverly Hills Cop 3 is almost like Bad Boys for Life. The most recent one is almost kind of a perfect one to one because like Bad Boys for Life is safer, tamer. It's not done by Bay. So like that vileness is not in it sort of thing. They're older. They're still mm-hmm. cracking wise. It's not like Martin Lawrence isn't being funny. Like he's sure. But like it would be like if Martin Lawrence was like, yeah, you know what? Like, no, like Marcus I'm, I'm more mature not, now. Yeah. Not going to be funny. You know, it's like, why wouldn't he be? It's just it's a weird concept. Well, and, and it's it, like we also talked about it a little bit because Vampire in Brooklyn was made around the same time as yes, well. And he was a pain this. in the ass on that set and didn't want to like crack jokes and, and be funny on that set as well. So I, I don't know if he was just like in just a weird rut in his career where like, cause he's like actively resisting the funny guy, which is what made his career. Well, and it's weird because like even vampire in Brooklyn, which is not a great movie, but the one thing you and I agreed on probably agreed on is number one, it's not as bad as reputation. And number two if Murphy gave even remotely the energy to this movie as he did for like the side characters in Vampire in Brooklyn, yeah. like this would have been a better. Like we talked about that movie on an episode where like Maximilian, the main vampire, he doesn't do the funny, but then like the preacher he does mm-hmm. and the white faced Italian character, he like does like cracks. Wide. So it's just it's just so strange to me that it's like this is your one of your most iconic roles. It's for me one of the best movies like i just i love for Hills cop and so it's just like mm. why wouldn't you come bring the funny to this it's so and it seems like it'd be like a fun like for an actor like eddie murphy it seems like this would be a fun sort of shoe to slip back on and and just go yeah. back into the, i'm gonna be a bullshitter i'm gonna put on my my persona from raw and just do that shit and get paid 20 million dollars to do it like it's so weird that you'd be like nah I'm going to be a more mature, grounded Axel Foley, which makes him like a a more boring rigs from Lethal Weapon. Yeah, abs- Lethal Weapon's actually a good comparison of this because it's like the Lethal Weapon movies get really creaky too as you get mm-hmm. up there past like I mean I like 3 I like Lethal Weapon 3 better than I do this movie, but it's like it's but like once you get up there you're just sort of just like yeah, you're just doing the same old thing. And so mm-hmm. it's like 
it's tough, I guess, because I'm like, I understand maybe in his head what he was going for of like, oh, well, like maybe we'll take the character in a different direction. But it's like the rest of the movie is not in a different direction. It's like we're returning to Beverly Hills. We have characters from the first one. Uh, mm-hmm. We have an amusement park as a setting. Like there's all kinds of hygiene. Oh, the setting's get great. Into here. The setting's fantastic. Like the, the best thing about the movie is the setting and how they utilize the setting. And even though maybe it's not funny, like some of the stunts are like pretty good. Like when he saves those two kids from yeah, the, on the uh, spider or whatever. The spider yeah. is like really well done. Um, you know, it's like a high end security, uh, uh, like facility, like a futuristic security element. So kind of like Gremlins too in that way, like state yeah. of the art, like uh, 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 facility. Um, I just realized something. Like I mentioned, bad boys. I just I don't want to tangent, but I don't want to exit Uh-oh. that without remembering that uh, uh, Teresa Randall. <laughs> It from who's Marcus's wife in the Bad Boys series is the love interest in this movie. <laughs> so I just needed to point that out there. But um I'm glad you but, pointed that out. Thank you. But it's such an odd movie. Like it's an odd movie because it's not very funny, and it's an odd movie because like the action is not as good as the other two um mm. movies either. I mean, well Well, I think that lands squarely on on John Landis. I think so. Like and it's so like I, I don't know like it's weird to say about someone who's kind of a real life piece of shit but it's like i kind of felt for landis watching this movie in a weird way because like i i think i mentioned it on that vampire in brooklyn episode there's like that av club article about like the tumultuous relationship between eddie murphy and uh john landis mm-hmm. and how eddie murphy brought john landis on to direct coming to america um even after everything that happened on the twilight zone because uh landis was pretty much unhirable but eddie murphy knew he could get the job done like he knew he was a crack comedic director and so he knew he could he could do what he wanted to do and i think just where murphy was at ego wise at that point he also knew he could bully him around a little bit mm-hmm. like because there was a moment where like landis was like debating with him on a scene in coming to america and eddie murphy basically pulled him aside he's like dude like i did you a fucking favor by hiring you on this movie right yeah i would hire you at you're, this point you're fucking hollywood poison right now <laughs> you're poison so. i hire i brought you on because i knew you could do this job so do your fucking job and let me do my thing um and so coming to america was uh, is obviously a classic it's a great movie and like you know it sort of probably made landis be not as hollywood poison because hollywood is vapid and soulless and uh so one hit boom like forget about those people who died in the helicopter right um (laughs) those two children that died in that helicopter accident just like uh, completely avoidable helicopter accident that was unnecessary and everyone told him not to do yeah, it's asshole. totally okay now because uh, uh, because coming to America was a hit. Yeah, um, he made a bunch of money with this movie, so hey, hey it's welcome all back. Forgiven. Yeah, okay, but um, you know, but it's like, uh, you know, but then like this movie, he he does it, and so it's like Murphy is like, it, it's just like it seems like a weird anemic experience where it's just like, I, like he's like, I got a star who is not out of control, but he's just not doing what I feel that these scenes need, right. and it's like when you have that sort of disconnect between director and star, like you're like, what do you expect the results to be? And I guess that this, you know, where it's just like, everything is so disjointed (laughs) because they're not working in tandem with one another. It's so strange. Well, and we should also get into the structure of the movie. Like we did with, with gremlins too, because the the movie, the movie more or less is, is structured very similar to Beverly Hills cop. 
the uh, first one specifically. Yes. Because the second one's a little different. It's like Ronnie Cox is threatened in Beverly Hills by like the villain and the name. But like it's it's structurally the first one where like Axel's friend comes to visit and then Axel's friend is killed by uh Jonathan Banks and his gang, and then he traces mm-hmm. them to Beverly Hills. And it's the same thing here where it's like the captain is killed and it's like he's been a rock through the previous two movies so it's like this is now very personal and that's the other thing too like sorry i want to hear what you have to say and we got to get the structure more but like it's so strange from your like this seems incredibly personal very personal and it's like it's not very funny but then it's not like serious either it's just like it's just very strange but yes the structure is almost identical to the first one where it's like person close to axel's killed traced to beverly hills finds mm-hmm. judge reinhold and uh and well not taggart uh because uh apparently it was his they hemmed and hawed over it so his schedule didn't allow for a john ashton to return so uh so that's why hector elizondo is basically the, the taggart but not in this right situation but like yeah identical and then like also respected person in the community that axel is seemingly made to be a fool because he's harassing them but actually he's the villain behind it so it's 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 very very similar in a lot of respects well it, that's very very similar and and the there's also the whole i mean his entire sneaking around and the 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 beverly hills police department doing this cat and mouse of like hey we're friends with that guy and we know he's on the up and up so you gotta stop investigating okay like okay i'll stop investigating hey we caught you investigating you better knock that off oh i wasn't investigating i'm definitely not and so like that whole push pull but the only thing that they changed up this time is that now it's the feds it's um the fbi yeah uh, uh, it's Secret Service, uh, and the guy who is playing it is uh, Stephen McCaddy, uh, who is a Good Bad What alumni. Last appeared uh, on our episode when we talked about Pontypool. Ah, yes, 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 yes. So it was good to see him. Um, He's got a, a great uh, silky baritone uh, voice, great dulcet I- tones. I liked seeing him in this movie, and he's like, you know, and he's consistently taking that, which like. Like, Axel's Axel, and he's going to do what he's going to do. But, like, also, if he was more mature, he would, like, understand the gravity of the situation. So that's right. another thing that's weird about it. Where it's just, like, Stephen McCaddy's telling him, like, look, like, we know Ellis is corrupt. And we're building a case against him. So just let us do our jobs, and we will be able to build the case. Like, we appreciate, like, your service. We appreciate that you're invested in this. But please just, like, chill out and let's do it. And then he like, you know, he sort of fumbles a reveal, and then that's when he like he takes himself, he's like, dude, like what the fuck, like yeah, like we, we had this you. fucking guy, and you fucked us, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it's just like that seems like 1984 Axel. So if it's like he really was mature in 1994, he wouldn't be still up to this. So if he's still gonna be up to this, then he needs to be funny, right? <laughs> Damn it, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, so it's well, and, just like, why are you not? Well, and it's also <laughs> it, it, like. If he's just on a vengeance tear, if, if he's completely gone off the books and it's a vengeance tear, there needs to be a point where he is operating outside of the law and where he is no longer a cop. Because, I mean, like, they skirted that thing. Like, it, it, in true sequel fashion, you need to up the stakes. And so they, they did that that same thing in the first Beverly Hills Cop where every time he got caught, it's like, if we catch you 
you know, you know, do an ABC, you know, we want your gun and your badge and, you know, we're going to send you packing or, or whatever. And they never quite crossed that line or, or like they, they got close enough to the point, but then he was able to close the investigation and then bullshit his way into being like, well, no, like this was a, a undercover investigation by the Beverly Hills Police Department in order to, you know, catch this guy doing this thing. There should have been a point where he like arrested by the Secret Service for because there's even a point where they, they they had him on the line and it could have happened. Like you said, like he blows their cover and Stephen McCaddy dresses him down of, of like, we fucking had this guy. And then you came in after I told you explicitly not to do this and you fucked our investigation. And if you weren't a cop, I'd be hauling your ass in. And it's just like, fucking no, haul his ass in now. Like, you, you should already did be arresting once. You him. already did it once. Right. That's where we get the Joe Dante cameo is the cop working the, <laughs> the police lineup. But he already did it once. And then he said, don't do this. We appreciate it. Here's a first class ticket back to Detroit. Get out of here. Right. And then he proceeds to do the and thing then he, he escapes just told not to do. Goes and does his thing. Yeah. But like he should have been arrested and he should have escaped arrest and been yeah. a wanted man. And then those would have been the stakes. And then like they say, oh, then you have to find your true friend sort of situation. Like is Judge Reinhold going to like break his chain of command? Like he's he's been like a stickler for the rules up until this point, but is he going to protect Axel Foley if he knows that he's wanted by the Secret Service, that he's like a, yeah. a federally wanted? Like that's the sort of questions that you should be posing to the audience. But like when you when the retread is this close to the original, then it, it like, okay, we've been here before. We know that these are stakes that he's overcome before. So why would I be worried for Axel Foley in this situation? Right. You're not worried about it. And then it's also the heel turn. Uh, uh, Timothy Carhart's heel turn is like super forced too. of like, yeah. you know, it's just like, you don't really have any reason to be like, quote unquote, covering your tracks at this point. And so it's just like, uh, it, it just feels like unforced errors, mm -hmm. uh, both on the part of the hero and the villain of this movie, where you're just like, you're just doing this because the plot mechanisms dictate that you need to do this. Right. Yeah. Whereas, like, it's, it's said in the script that you had to do that. Which it's interesting, too, because it's like it, it feels like. It's fascinating too. like another element I want to throw out here as well. Not only do you have the not Bruckheimer Simpson involvement in this movie, but you have a, you know, pretty much staunch comedy director, occasionally horror, but mostly mm -hmm. comedy director, not an action director, not somebody who has a really good grasp of action. And you have a screenplay written by almost an exclusively action screenplay writer because Stephen E. DeSouza wrote the script of this movie who wrote Die Hard. Right. So it's just like you. Wait, why is it so disconnected? It, like why is the comedy like it, it almost would have been better the other way around like you know i mean not that maybe he wouldn't have returned to it but it's like if tony scott would have returned to direct this after the second one, it's like it would have been better to have a comedy writer and an action director versus the other way around oh <laughs> versus sure. we have an action director that clearly has no real jokes in the script and then Murphy's eluding any sort of riffing that Landis is putting him in a situation to do. And you have John Landis directing, who's not really the most fleet of action director. And so you're just sort of like, what am I left with here? Like, sure, the last 20 minutes, I guess, get appropriately violent. But like, I don't know. It's it's all sort of like just dictates the plot dictates everything as opposed to anything organically happening. Because right. the first one feels so spontaneous. Like, mm -hmm. it feels like just like anything could happen 
you know, where it's and like, anything like, does like anything he, does the riffing, the, the scenes are great when he goes to the hotel and he's like, I'm supposed to interview Michael Jackson, but they don't let me in here because I'm not going to repeat what he says. But like, <laughs> that scene, it's, uh, it's, which, it's which is fantastic. Though. It's so good. Or the, like, they go to the strip club scene and like, because the tagger and, uh, Billy think he's the like, the scene is, is fantastic. And I think for me, like a perfect amalgamation of like why Beverly Hill, Beverly Hills cop works is, yes. is that it's like, cause it's an aside that's not unrelated to the plot because they're going over plot details in their conversation, but like it gives these characters a moment to bond in a completely unrelated bust, like the, them doing good cop show- shit. Yeah. what a competent cop he like he's a wise ass and he's hot-headed but he shows right. like hey do you see that person i'm looking at that person in purple my eyes they're about to make that happen yeah i'm not just blowing happen. smoke you know he's like he's dancing but he's like i'm not just blowing yeah i'm not just blowing smoke and it's so it's like that scene is is fantastic of course the banana the tailpipe and uh you know it's just like i'm not falling for the banana and the tailpipe we've been in time with this guy too long um <laughs> so it's, like, it's so great and it's like and also, if you're going to bring characters back, there's certain ones that's like, why aren't they? Why isn't Paul Reiser back? Why isn't Jeffrey back? Why is it la, la, la? i not listening to Jeffrey. You're still <laughs> talking, man. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I can just quote a thought in the first Beverly Hills Cop, like, no tomorrow. But it's just like, that but movie feels so Can you so quote anything from Beverly Hills Cop 3? Uh, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Really. I thought you were gonna try for a second. I was like, "Oh shit!" No, because something? the only line I really recall is like, like verbatim is the the just as the callback to the first one of like, "Get the fuck out of here!" Get the fuck out of here! Yeah. Um, you know, but it's it's uh, yeah. No, I can't really, I can't really do anything from Beverly Hills Cop Three. I had more remembering quotes from Beverly Hills Cop Two than I did Beverly Hills Cop Three. Um, so it's just when Ronnie Cox made a crack of like, he wasn't in this movie because he read the script <laughs> like <laughs> like uh was like, cool <laughs> like that's yikes. a huge shade running cops <laughs> so, like, yikes so it's just i don't know it wasn't it's not horrible like it's watchable and i will say i did get the 4k trilogy that paramount just put out and it looks great like the transfer's phenomenal like um because I just missed when movies look like movies. So it's like, mm-hmm. uh, so it looks like a movie. It just is like kind of like it's routine. It's through the motions. Um, and it's not that funny. And it's not right. that well action. And it's like weird because you're like, you have a star and a director who are most known for doing things that are very funny. <laughs> Why isn't this funny? Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I, on paper, you you'd be like yeah. oh yeah sure like that's totally like but that it just does not come together in any any cohesive manner manner at it all. It doesn't. Uh, I guess the only other thing we forgot to mention before we move to the next movie, as far as gratuitous cameos, uh, George Lucas is a cameo. Yes, I've seen that still image before, like before watching this movie, and I didn't know that this was the movie that that was from, and I was like, oh, <laughs> this is the movie. Uh, and and he it's another one of those where it feels like they maybe wanted eddie murphy to riff a bit more than he does because because like basically he cuts him off in line and and george lucas has a line of like hey what are you doing and he's just like oh i gotta go up there and i gotta change a cable and he doesn't like 
because there's a part early on in the movie when they go to do the bust um, at the chop shop where he like cops a character and he's like, hey, you know, I, I have a car out here. Like my old lady's been fucking around. I, I wanted to get her car chopped up or whatever. Like what was that going to cost? How much time? Is it and he's just trying to like riff and, and, and burn up this guy's time. And that felt very Axel Foley. It felt very early on like other movies. And then he just never does that again in the rest of the movie. And this totally felt like a situation where he would be bullshitting the carny who's like holding on to the thing and George Lucas and his girlfriend. But he just like, Oh no, I got to fix a cable up there. Sorry. And then the guy just like, Oh, okay. Just lets him go. And it's like, you have George Lucas. Why don't you do something? with? Yeah. That, right? Some banter. Like, have a joke like, about star Wars or ET. Like, like the, something, but like the, there's no reason why it needed to be George Lucas rather than literally anybody else. And it's just, uh, and because there's no joke, just the joke in itself is that it's George Lucas, that's but, George it's like, Luke, that, yeah. but that's not funny in and of itself. And if it's you don't just, recognize him, there's just a guy. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I gotta imagine most, most people would recognize. He's a fairly him. distinctive looking man, <laughs> but like it would be hard not to. Like Joe Dante, I get. Like he probably sure. slid under the radar to some people, but it's like, and most people know what George Lucas looks like. But yeah, uh, you know. But like, but it's it's so strange. Like it's just the whole thing's weird. It's for a movie that's incredibly safe and boilerplate. It is weird, and that's notable. I'll give it that. It's weird sure. that it's, <laughs> but it's just kind of plain and yeah i it's 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 definitely one i don't anticipate ever really revisiting unless i i don't know decide to watch the whole trilogy but i i think i'll just stick with one and two yeah i think yeah yeah i very much the same even though apparently i watched the shit out of this movie at some point in my life um yeah i i i don't there's no pull for me to ever revisit this movie um if we're on the point of, of of mentioning cameos as well um, we can't quite pivot out of the movie without uh, giving uh, kudos and credence and a head nod to the late John Saxon, who does have a role yeah. in this movie as well. Yes, John Saxon is fantastic in this movie, playing very Always. much. I mean, he's the John Saxon role, but like it, it was nice to see him in this movie. Yeah, sure. uh, just crushing it. So same year as a uh, new nightmare, too. So, hey, look at that. Twofer. So, hey, look at you, John Saxon, the, the um, Saxonissance. <laughs> I mean, the Sax Autosons never really went away because the dude's got like 300 <laughs> credits to his name. That dude was working until the day he died. So, like, legend. Uh, absolute legend. He's, he, so, yeah, it was great to see John Saxon in it. And, like, I was amused, like I said, I was amused by the Lucas and the Joe Dante cameos, but it's just, like, sort of, why? <laughs> like, right, yeah. why, other, why other than you just got your famous friends to be in this movie? Why other than it's amusing for the filmmakers to have this cameo? Because what is the audience getting out of this? And I mean, That's, ultimately, the audience didn't get anything out of Beverly Hills Cop 3. So, Considering this movie made $42 million domestically, which is, which what did I say the first one made? Like 200 and mm-hmm. I still have it up. 234 million. And then I think Beverly Hills Cop 2 made like 160 which like is lower, but like that's still high for 1987. Oh, yeah. Like that's still a profitable movie, but like this movie, just no one cared by the time this movie came out, um, and including Murphy. <laughs> yeah, and, but before the movie came out, he didn't care. So I mean, ahead, I of, last, ahead of the ahead of the curve. I guess lastly, before we pivot to our last movie, I did want to note part of the reason I cobbled this together is not only does our next movie have a sequel coming out in a couple weeks, but there is a new Beverly Hills Cop coming out mm. this summer mm. to Netflix called Beverly Hills Cop colon Axel Foley. 
because Top Gun Maverick made a billion ish dollars. So that's what we have to name these movies now, apparently. And uh, I don't know. I'm just like, I mean, I will say I didn't see the Coming to America sequel. You didn't so, miss anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't really good. speak. I can't really speak to that, but I can speak to like uh, uh, Dolomite is his name. Yeah, that was fantastic. Eddie but I Murphy say, can still get it. He's, if you he want can to, still get so. it. And so he wants to revisit his old characters. It's like totally the opposite from 1994. Like he wanted mm-hmm. to do Coming to America. He wants to revisit Axel Foley. So maybe wanting to revisit it will spark something. But like Coming to America, I don't know. Like, or Coming to the number two to America. It just, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just, it just felt like a series of callbacks. And I really hope that this movie is not that because i just as i was watching the sequel to coming to america i was just like what am i getting out of this I, it's just like there's there's nothing here really um but dolomite is my name was fantastic and like that it's like he's still there like he's still oh, sure. there he could still do it so i don't know maybe this will be good i'm gonna give it the i'm gonna watch it like i'm not oh yeah why, i mean I'm yeah, why not? going to watch it it's gonna be on netflix like i'll watch it but right just, yeah I'm going to be cautiously optimistic about it for sure. I think that's fair. Speaking of speaking of upcoming sequels that I'm going to be cautiously optimistic about, uh, oh, do we <laughs> speak to Ghostbusters too? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very, very curious to talk about Ghostbusters too. At the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve of the last decade of the 20th century, America's largest city is about to pay for the nastiness of its inhabitants. When that day comes, when the slime starts to rise, the Titanic just arrived. When ghosts start arriving by the boatload, we gotta find the guys. There's only one thing to do. Sometimes weird things happen. Someone has to deal with it. And who are you going to call? That's right, sucking the guts, guys, with the Ghostbusters. The superstars of the supernatural are back to nuke the spooks. Two in the box, ready to go. We'd be fast and they'd be slow. Me too. Uh, so let's get into it. Um, I'll read the plot synopsis here. Um, this one I wrote by heart because I saw this movie a bunch. <laughs> this one I because bo- I, I saw this movie a bunch as a kid. Uh, five years after the Ghostbusters took down Gozer and saved New York, they were also sued by every city and state level legislation and property management company and lost their business license. Ray, once again played by Dan Aykroyd, and Winston, once again played by Ernie Hudson, are performing at kids' birthday parties with Ray now owning an occult store. Egon, played by Harold Ramis, uh, has started a new lab studying human emotions. And Peter, played by Bill Murray, now hosts a show about crackpot psychics. Dana, once again, Sigourney Weaver, begins noticing strange occurrences with her baby Oscar. And the Ghostbusters are once again called into action to investigate. After getting their license back for saving a ghost attack at the courthouse, the quartet investigate this mysterious evil ooze flowing out of the city, all seemingly pointed to a painting at the museum Dana works at of Viggo the Terrible, played by Wilhelm von Homburg, but voiced by Max von Sydow. 
who's mm. using Dana's wiener of a boss, Janusz Poha, played by Peter McNichol, as a vessel to do his bidding. Um, that was my other... Peter McNichol is, cannot not play a wiener. Like, no. I like him as an actor, but it's just like, he's always a wiener. He's, he's typecast real McBill. hard. He's a wiener in the Burt Reynolds movie. He, he's a total... But like... He's funny though. Like I, I like the line that I remember. It made me laugh rewatching it. Is like when we're first introduced to him and he's teaching the class. He looks at the one girl and goes, "Everything you're doing is bad. I just want you I to just want know you that." To know that. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I'll ask you though. What is your history with Ghostbusters two? And uh, Ghostbusters one for that matter? Because I don't think we've talked about the first one. On no, no, not no. I mean not at any length i think we've mentioned no. it before but uh, i mean so uh growing up ghostbusters was not really a part of my childhood like, it, like i know that this is a huge movie for a bunch of people and i didn't really watch it when i was a kid it wasn't something until i saw until i was like a teenager um and then i was definitely like oh i i get it but it, it wasn't like a formative movie for me so it's something that i've always like respected uh and mm-hmm. liked i mean definitely ghostbusters is a great movie but um it, not like in my my pantheon of movies that are like a must watch uh beloved thing um ghostbusters 2 is one that very much like ghostbusters 3 as i was watching it this most recent time I was like i remember that thing i remember this portion i like i remember this scene i remember the shot i remember this joke throughout it and and it has a lot of that stuff that um it's following the the formula of the first ghostbusters like to a t like it's basically a mad lib of the first ghostbusters with like some very slight changes um but yeah some of those changes is like pretty stand out iconography like the 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 piloting um the the statue of liberty uh the uh, the, even just the entire painting of vigo the river of slime um Mm -hmm. there there's so much in here that's just like it's very distinctively ghostbusters 2 however as a whole like as a complete thing it's it's just a a shadow of ghostbusters one so it's like a really weird thing where it's just like they you didn't go far enough in like making your sequel completely off the rails however there was some some creative choices that happened along the way that that hint at there there was something there that could have been a big thing but it's like underdeveloped in in the sinew that would have made it a, a big hit movie like the first ghostbusters i agree like there there's something missing but it's like but the ingredients are still here Mm-hmm. Which maybe like that sort of leads it to being a what? Maybe we can explore that for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So my uh, this was definitely a formative movie for me. I owned okay. both these movies on VHS. I watched one especially a lot, but I often watched the two of them in like pretty close succession. So it's so odd. Like it, like as an adult, like I still rewatch the first one probably at least once a year. But it's like I don't watch two as often. But it was a weird experience, like rewatching it, where I'm just like, I remember this movie like wholeheartedly. Not as much as the first one. The first one, if my life depended on it, I could probably quote from beginning to end. But this one, not so much. But it's like I remembered it, um, and it's like you said, man. Did I on this rewatch? Did I notice how much the template of the first one, this movie, <laughs> follows to the yeah. T? It's like it's like a weird occurrence happens. Uh, disgraced scientists weird things happen to dana barrett investigating dana barrett 
you know, has a big meet heroic cute moment. With, uh, meet uh, cute with, with Vankman. Bill and Murray. Mia. And, yeah. Yeah. And then, it, yeah, meet cute with them. And then they have a big success utilizing their proton packs and the traps. And then cue the montage of them being successful. Of being New York's heroes. And, being New York's heroes. And then cue them, uh, you know, then finding more about whatever this evil is that's lashed itself to Dana and then, like, that evil, like, starts to ramp up its thing towards Dana. Uh, Vankman and Dana go on a date. Weird shit happens while they're on the date. Um, you know, uh, some wiener from the mayor's mm-hmm. office wants to shut the Ghostbusters down. Um, which, like, it's exactly the same. Like, Kurt oh, yeah. Fuller is basically the same character as William Atherton in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Like, to a T. It's just, you know, and then it's like Ghostbusters arrested and or committed. And then all hell breaks loose. And then the Ghostbusters let go. And then they say, come in and save the day with a big giant thing through this. It's just so much of the temple is the same. However, I will say in retrospect, because I don't know if you've watched any of the movies past this second one. I have. No. Um, I was appreciative that even though it was, you know, maybe not as common as these Lego sequels to really latch itself onto the beats of the first movie um, or specifically the iconography of the first movie. I appreciated that they didn't do like the exact same things in the in the micro like the the macro as you said like the plot is basically the same but it's like right they didn't bring back gozer they didn't bring back the stay puff marshmallow man like right uh they brought back slimer briefly for a gag but like for the most it's just like whatever it's a throwaway gag it's fine um but it's like vigo the terrible is its own sort of thing the river mm-hmm. of slime is its own sort of iconography like you said the the statue of liberty uh, is it so, like so? Uh, the the Scarelli brothers uh, yeah. are its own gave sort of like the gave him the chair. Heresy Heresy was so great this movie, but the, he had like a nickname like not the Rumble. I know that's money playing, but it was like he had like a nickname that like it made me laugh. And I love too that you like, just can't I like, differentiate money playing in, in other movies. Money playing is now ingrained in my in my personal lexicon. It's hard to to do, but like. Uh, but uh, I appreciate that they didn't go back to the well for that, which they yeah. did for Ghostbusters Afterlife, where it's like they brought back Gozer and they brought back mm-hmm. the, these little mini Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Oh, I, I didn't they, see it, but I'm aware that they just completely were like, ah, we're out of ideas. I will say the first half of the movie is actually way better than you could expect. Maybe even first 60 percent of that movie and then the 40 percent, last 40 percent are exactly what you thought the movie was going to be. Was going to be. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and so it's like. What do you do? You're like, well, 60% of this movie was better than I thought it was going to be. So I guess, okay, sure. Yeah, congrats. Um, We'll see about this new one. I I cringed during the trailer. I just went to the movies twice this week as we were talking about off mic. And I saw the trailer both times that I went to the movie. And I'm just like... That good? um, Well, I'm just... I don't like the member berries. Like, that's the thing. Like, when when Ghostbusters Afterlife kind of does its own thing that's where it's sort of at its best but then it's like but when it gets down to like like the it's it's egon's granddaughter in ghostbusters mm-hmm. afterlife there's like a scene later in the movie where she he like he she finds his old jacket with the spangler uh thing on it and inside the pocket is the fucking crunch bar that vankman gives him in the beginning of ghostbusters it's been in there for the like 40 fucking years yeah that's what i was saying that's what it's absurd um and then like but like the trailer for frozen empire has a lot of like different 
like callbacks like that, like Janine answering the the phone and like Ghostbusters, what do you want? Well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like it's not her answering the phone; it's specifically the Ghostbusters, what do you want? When she has that frustrated moment, oh with yeah, Bankman yeah, about getting a raise in the first movie. So I was like, I don't mind her being back in this movie. I love Annie Potts; like, mm. it's it's great seeing her, and I like her. I I like the. Uh, uh, I like the relationship that her and Rick Moranis have in this movie. I it's did like too. Weirdly I just like seeing horny. Rick Moranis again too. Oh my god! I I enjoyed like his sort of expanded role in this, and like that he's like, it just. I like that they didn't do his character. Like Lewis is still very much Lewis, but it's not like he's doing the exact same thing. And it's just like, of course, he got his like law degree at night school. Like it's just like those things where you're just like, this is that's a good expansion for that character. Yeah, and him just being uncomfortable and like out of his own skin, trying to <laughs> to and defend when Vankman, him in court. like like giving him like notes on like here's how you like speak to the judge yeah. like it's very so you're you leading hear the them both having a conversation <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, what was the that? Def- oh uh, <laughs> uh no other questions your honor uh <laughs> did you have any qu- yeah oh and then uh and he was like hey you're supposed to like hey, you're another lawyer too like she's picking on him <laughs> he's mad oh <laughs> uh, it's so good uh uh yeah it's it's so it's like it that's the weird thing it's it's characters like the temp- that we recognize them we love and they're doing things that we recognize and we love but it, it's still wholly unique in this setting and that the way that they present the characters have grown in the time off screen uh, like in yes. that five-year time period they still have taken on new characteristics like you said uh, uh ray has his occult books that he mentions like wanting to open in the first one uh lewis mm-hmm. has gone to uh, uh you know, night school um everyone's moved on with their careers there's now some like off-screen sort of tension between yep. uh, ray and egon and vankman um i think for me the the biggest sort of like dirt in the eye is the way that they treat ernie hudson in the movie in, in that it, this is he something gets that better it, it, than the first one he gets better than the first one but better than the first one but like the the context being that when they were writing the script for the first Ghostbusters, the uh, the character of Winston was supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. But Eddie yep. Murphy signed on to do Beverly Hills Cop instead. And then in a mad dash, they were like, well, we're, we'll recast the character. We'll get Ernie Hudson to play the character. But Ernie Hudson isn't Eddie Murphy. So we're going to cut down a bunch of his lines considerably. Uh, yeah. That we're going to go to Eddie Murphy. And so then he's kind of just not much of a character in the first one. He's like a very much a support character. But then in this one, they knew it was going to be Ernie Hudson from the very beginning. And they still didn't give him any lines, didn't give him anything to do. He's still very much a support character. And there are entire sequences with the Ghostbusters where Ernie Hudson isn't there doing the yeah. Ghostbusters stuff with him. That's just like, well, fuck you guys. Like he he's still a Ghostbuster. I know it's it's so frustrating because he's he's good in the role. Like yeah. I love every scene that he's in, but it's just like yeah, especially like it gets better as the movie progresses. But like because of that tempo to the first one, it's like especially those early sequences of like them investigating Dana's apartment, and it's just Vankman and Ray and Egon, and then it's same when they like first find the river of slime mm-hmm. when they're pretending to be like uh, construction workers and yelling at the cop and they're like ah look we know you're not with the phone company like it's like the phone lines on that side of the street mm-hmm. what did i tell you the phone lines on that like, <laughs> like 
I'll tell you I what enjoy- we're doing. Some assholes got us out here. I both these movies are new, very New York movies. Oh, yeah. I love that, and that's like the only thing I'm excited about about the new one is that it's back in New York. So we'll. we'll oh, that's good. We'll, okay, we'll see. Yeah, like this the the last one was in like bumfuck Montana or something like that. I don't remember. Uh, I yeah, I remember them somewhere. like driving the the Ecto one through like a cornfield or some shit, and it's like what what. Yeah, who cares yeah, about sure. some so, some big cataclysmic? And I mean, like, I know that they they casted like the Stranger Things kid to be in it too. So it's like they're just trying to tie it to Stranger Things and it be about small town America. Yeah, it's it. Ghostbusters Afterlife, the approach ill advised, the execution way better than you thought. Ghostbusters twenty sixteen is the right approach, but it was done unfortunately not great. And mm. I don't want to open that can of worms because I don't want. I don't want to empower uh, internet man baby children because it's not. Oh no! Because it's not not that it's female Ghostbusters that it was bad. Like it's a great cast. It just didn't come together the way that it could and should have. Well, and it's also uh, it's a semi-scripted movie, right? Because it was uh, uh, Paul Feig. Paul Feig, yeah. Which like. Yeah, it's hard. You're rolling the it, dice anytime you walk into a, a semi-scripted movie because you could end up with uh, uh, what was the other uh, movie that they did? Bridesmaids. Well, Bridesmaids is great. I Bridesmaids love Bridesmaids. Is great, but it's it's semi-scripted is good too. So it is semi-scripted. Like well, frankly, but if you want to open that can of worms, Ghostbusters the original is kind of semi-scripted. Oh, sure. It also, yeah. um, it's such a shaggy dog comedy, and it's like, um, it's like. And that's maybe the question, sort of the core of these, like, three movies we're talking about is, like, can lightning strike twice or Beverly mm-hmm. Hills Cop case three times? Or, I guess, in Ghostbusters case, four or five times <laughs> now? Like, um... Well, once, we know for sure. Once, it did. Like, but, like, but Ghostbusters barely came together. Like, yeah. there was a lot of behind-the-scenes shit about that movie. And so it's just, like, it, like, is lucky that it limped in theaters. Not just limped, I mean, it was a huge success, but, like, lucky that what came out came out of that movie mm-hmm. and so it's like for two to be like you know it tries to replicate the magic and like some of it's there because i think this cast is still really well and they fall into their roles like very well once again and it's just nice to see them all together i also like seeing i love the sort of even though the template's the same i sort of love them being losers again at the start mm-hmm. i love that they're like these big heroes and it's like i oh, but we were also sued by every property company in the city because of all the property damage uh you know well, and, and, I mean, and acknowledging that time has passed the whole like sucking the guts boys were the ghostbusters yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but then also I, just knowing like that it, the, the movie is about paranormal investigators so they should be losers um, yeah. and, and that's not a dig at people that are paranormal investigators that, that, that really, it's more are, about are like, are you picking on Zach Baggins? Is that what you- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Okay. I am in a way it, it's, and I'm, I'm somebody who is a fan of the paranormal. I, I think it's fun. I, I, I really do have a lot. I mean, I'm a big X-Files fan. Uh, I'm right. a, a huge fan of, of like certain cryptids, like the Mothman oh, yeah. and whatnot. But I recognize that that is not mainstream. That that is like extremely nerdy shit to be into that, especially if you if you take it seriously. Like like my adoration of it is very tongue in cheek. But knowing what we do know now about um, uh, specifically uh, Dan Aykroyd. Sorry, I don't okay. know why his name slipped my mind. 
Dan Aykroyd is the reason that the series is still continuing to this day because he wants to. <laughs> and, but and he also like wholeheartedly believes in ghosts, believes in aliens, believes in all of this stuff. So it's not tongue in cheek for him. So this is the kind of thing that on paper, if some fucking like nerd from MUFON was just like, I'm going to write a feature script about aliens and ghosts and all the stuff that I do. Like, that should be a movie that pretty much everybody universally writes off and is just like, I uh, no, thank you. I am not interested in that at all. So it's incredible that somebody like Dan Aykroyd, who like is fully invested in this world, makes a movie like this that's not only like, not only successful, but like spawns huge toy line spawns five sequels that span several decades like features some of the greatest comedic minds of the time like it's incredible like you said lightning striking like lightning in a bottle is is what the yeah. first movie was like to capture that amount of comedic talent at the right place at the right time working on this script on this idea is mind-boggling because like 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 you said, Zach Baggins, Zach Baggins tried to write a script like this. This movie would not fucking get made. And if it did get made, it would not become Ghostbusters. No. Well, and I think like I, I do want to bring up because you brought up like the Raiders of the Lost Ark pitching, I think, on our last episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, where it's like, I think that's also the key of why these future ones have not been as successful, because I think there's a big, big, big gaping hole in these movies and that is unfortunately harold ramus mm -hmm. because harold ramus co-wrote one and two with dan Aykroyd, and so if you have dan Aykroyd who believes wholeheartedly in this world and this lore and this and these ideas and they're big crazy ideas but they're big ideas nonetheless and you have harold ramus sort of you know who worked on animal house and worked on national lampoon and like who's a comedy he's the filter guy. he's Groundhog the filter. Day. He, he takes one of the all greatest the comedies ever made yeah absolutely harold ramus is a genius was a genius and so it's like you're taking all the crazy and you're filtering it filtering it into something palatable and then you have a i will say you know decent director but crack producer in ivan reitman also r.i.p right. yeah who like who just knew how to package it and it's like boom then you had ghostbusters and so even though this movie is a little more try hard you still have that team of Aykroyd giving the lore and you have uh harold ramus filtering it making it palatable ivan reitman coming back to direct so it's like there's still some magic here there's still some oh, magic sure. in this there's still some magic in that old silcat we found <laughs> i guess like there's still some magic in this movie even though it's like it's a little bit more try hard, it's a little creaky in the plot mechanics, but it's like the cast really falls back in their roles. It's really entertaining. Um, like it's still a fun movie. And and like I said, I, I sort of tried to watch it to parse that idea like objectively with my own like nostalgia because I watched this movie a lot as a kid. Um, but it, it's like, nope, there's still something here. It's not the first one by any stretch, but it's, there's still something. Um, yeah. and just watching that cast riff off each other. And I do want to say, you know, I, I sort of had thrown like a smidge of shade towards like the newer movies, but I do want to say like, it sucks with Ernie Hudson about how like reduced his role as the first one and how they sort of do him dirty on this one. But he gets the last laugh because when they all suit up in Ghostbusters Afterlife, guess who's far and away the best looking one, despite being the oldest 
Ernie Hudson. Hell yeah. <laughs> Ernie Hudson has aged very well. Better than Aykroyd and Murray has. Oh, well. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm I just saying why. that. <laughs> so <laughs> I've just, just pointed it out there. So plus it looks like Ernie Hudson sort of leading the charge in this new one. So that's kind of cool. Oh, good. I, I'll see the new movie. Like I'll see it like, but I'm, I don't know if I'm excited about it, but I'll, I'll see it. So. I mean, Winston should should. I mean, he's earned it. He's earned his due. He should he's have his time in the sun. Plus, Paul um, Rudd's in the newer ones too. Yeah. Like, you can't go wrong. Paul Rudd. I love Paul Rudd. Uh, yeah. Patton Oswalt and Kunel Nanjiani are in this latest one coming out. So it's like, Patton Oswalt seems perfect to be in that. Like, he seems like a like a Ray. Like based on the trailer, oh, and sure. he's like into this shit and all this. So I'm just like, that's a per- that's and a that per- might be a I I I I know Patton Oswalt's a nerd, so it would track yeah. that he would be a, a paranormal fan and and into this kind of shit. Um, yeah, for so sure. I would understand that. But uh, yeah, so that was. Honestly, that that and the new Beverly Hills Cop coming out this year was kind of the basis of this. Not the just impetus, that it's been yeah. 40 years since the original of these, but that we have a new Beverly Hills Cop and we have a new Ghostbusters uh, coming out this year because what's old is new again. And mm. uh, we still have no Gremlins 3 because Joe Dante has continuously to get his, got his wish. <laughs> so, there's some animated Gremlin series on HBO Max, but I've never watched it. Yeah, and I have no desire to. And uh, I don't either. And I'm glad that you started the episode by sort of talking about how uh, in recent time, and especially like in, in 2023, that it was it, it's been shown that having a recognizable IP isn't enough anymore. That audiences are cluing into this thing finally of like, oh, you slapped a recognizable name on the movie. Who gives a shit? You have to do something more to entice me yep. into it. And Barbie I, doesn't make $1.4 billion by being a shitty movie. Like, right. It, like, it's recognizable, but it's like, it made $1.4 billion because it was a really good movie. Because it's a very it's good a movie, yeah. movie. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But no, just, but you're, you're absolutely right. And in that, in that it, it's not the IP alone. It's that you actually have to put some craft and some thought into it. And so I, I'm hoping that this lesson starts to be taken up pretty soon and that people start to approach their their attempts at cashing in on these ips by giving sort of carte blanche to creative filmmakers like joe dante who are going to take it and run with the ball like he did with gremlins 2 and and just give you something that's that's again something that you haven't seen before something that that like elevates the concept that they've already put down on paper or or else there's no point in really doing it um which we you know, have gone over here in these in these three uh, movies that we talked about. Whereas, like, you know, if you're going to retread it and give us Beverly Hills Cop three, why are we here? It doesn't even seem like you want to be here. Um, at the very exactly. least, give us a Ghostbusters two where we the cast ad- wants to be here. We adore least. the cast. We adore the characters. We adore some of the concepts and the ideas, but you didn't quite take it far enough or, or do something too different with it. Um, if, if you're going to, and, and maybe it's the, like you talked about, like it's the, the retrospect of having sort of that cushion, having some, some years between the last one coming out where you're not like running headlong into, holy shit, we have a hit on our hands. We got to make a movie in the, in the next two years so we can cash in on this. And you're just running in with whatever script comes hot off the press. If you're going to stop and you're going to take six years, seven years between movies and you know that that last one was adored, 
maybe really, really look at that thing under a, a, a spyglass and assess why people connected with it in the first place and elevate it. Take it to a new level and surprise the audience again or else just keep it on the shelf. Absolutely. No, I think I don't think I could say that better myself because it's just like, you know, and I feel like it's, it's sort of we're seeing it again with these. It's like, you know, I hope the new Ghostbusters is good. I hope any movie I go see is good. Right. I have my doubts about it, like, I, <laughs> but I but I hope it's good. The numbers you know? are not with you. Yeah, the numbers are not with me, but who knows? <laughs> Maybe it'll be super surprising and be great. I don't know. But it's like like you said, it's like, you know, we're 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 not out of the sort of IP stank just because these things are in production and pre-production for so long that it's like, we still have movies coming out that were greenlit before last year of like stuff, you mm-hmm. know, but it's like, but it's like, you sort of like, you look and you're like, okay, where am I going to put my faith here in some of these of like, you know, maybe there are years late sequels, but maybe they'll turn out to be good based on the filmmaker. I mean, I think of like, as far as like looking at the summer, I think of like Furiosa, where it's just like, mm. I trust George Miller. Yep. Like, yeah, it's nine years after Mad Max Fury Road. Will people care? I don't know, but I care. Because, I care. Because Fury Road rocks. And Fucking so it's rocks. Like, and so does I, the Road Warrior. And, and so does Mad Max. And George Miller has the track record to where I trust. I trust him. It's not the property. It's him that right. I trust. And it just so happens that it's part of the property. Um, you know, and so... So we'll see. Uh, we'll we'll see. I will be curious to see how 24, 24 shakes out and how like what are the highest grossing movies, right? I mean, like look at the three highest grossing movies last year. They were Barbie, which is an IP, but it's like it got there because it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, Oppenheimer. And it was subversive. Oppenheimer made almost a billion dollars. Uh, so it's like you have those two, and then you have the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is is what it is. But like you know. I will I'm not going to give the movie a pass, but I understand why it made so much money where it's like that's the most recognizable character, arguably in the world. One of the most recognizable oh, characters yeah. in the world. And they've never done a movie like it. And it looked and sounded like people expect Mario to look and sound. So right. I'm like, I get it. I get why it made that much. The next one has to be good, though. If they just do the same thing, people aren't going to care. But if the next one is like actually legitimately very good, then then you got now you got a stew. Uh, so oh, R- oh. R.I.P. Carl Weathers. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's, it's good. I mean, we've had several R.I.P.s in this episode so a lot far. Of R.I.P.s. A lot, a lot I of, mean, oh. this is a forty-year-old yeah. movie, yeah. so it's just like it's 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 unfortunate. Yeah, we got Harold Ramis, Ivan Reitman, uh, Dick uh, Miller, Dick Miller, John Saxon, uh, John Saxon. So it's just like, man, we could just have a whole in memoriam at the end of this episode. Um, <laughs> They don't I know see we babies forever, up. idiot. <laughs> Little dicky daffy pancake by a dump. <laughs> Throat um, slashed. I will say before we wrap this episode up, because I know we need to, but mm. I will. One thing, last thing I wanted to shout out to Ghostbusters 2 that I like the fucking soundtrack slaps. And yeah. It still slaps. The Run DMC track slaps. Uh, the, well, slaps might not be a good term to use for Bobby Brown's song, but. Um, <laughs> but. but it's Zing. a really good song. It's a really good song, but the but the soundtrack is is awesome for Ghostbusters too. I've been I've been I've been bumping it since I rewatched the movie. I was Hell like, yeah! This 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 thing rocks. Arguably better than the original Ray Parker Jr. song. A couple of these. So Arguably, I, I yeah, stand by. yeah. Arguably, I mean that's a classic. But uh, but I like I like the new tracks for this one. But um, anyway, but that's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it uh, and. Uh, I will kick it over to you, Chris, because it is your pick oh, for our next no. episode. Oh, oh that's no. right. <laughs> I forgot what I'd settled on. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So 
uh, next week, uh, we will be talking about uh, island prison escapes. Uh, the, still sort of sussing out the, the list, but yeah, all the movies will deal with a prison that's built on an island and people got to escape it. I look forward to that. I, I, I'm guessing people probably might know what one of the movies would be based on on that i don't know it's not the rock because we already talked it's about not it the right rock so. no but, I, that, but the rock but the rock rocks yeah that, yeah that would be that would be the great if we were doing a good bad what episode that would be <laughs> the, the the great I, the I fucking love the rock that's amazing. i do too it's so good i love the movie so much but yeah i'm looking forward to this it's gonna be a fun episode but in the meantime you can find this subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher i radio google Podcasts, and many others and you can follow us on instagram at the good bad what or you can email us at the good the bad the what at gmail.com our logo comes from Michelle Parkos and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and SoundCloud link you can find the show notes respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? You can find me on Letterboxd at C underscore T-H-O-M. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Ryan underscore Oliver. You can follow me on threads at Riley90. It's R-Y-O-L-I-E 90. Or on Blue Sky Social at Riley No 90. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with Island Prison Break. Movies. I guess we're gonna-